Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another special event with Banyan Books. Our honored guest this evening is Anam Thubton. Anam Thubton grew up in Tibet and at an early age began to practice in the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. Among his many teachers, his most formative guides were Lama Tsurlo, Kenpo Chopel, and Lama Garwang. Through the essential wisdom of Buddhism and his personal experience on the spiritual path, Anam Thubten brings alive the timeless teachings and invites everyone to participate. He is the founder and spiritual advisor of Dharmata Foundation, teaching widely in the U.S. and abroad. He is also the author of various articles and books in both the Tibetan and English language. His books in English include The Magic of Awareness and No Self, No Problem. Today, Anam Thubten is with Banyan Books in conversation about his new book, which is titled Into the Haunted Ground a guide to cutting the root of suffering from the Tibetan practice of Chod. A little bit about the book. In Into the Haunted Ground, Anam Thubten invites us to embrace every aspect of our lives from the most difficult to the most joyful. For those of us who feel caught in endless anxious thoughts and stuck in personal relationships, Anam Thubten offers a direct and practical approach to dismantle our conceptual fixations, reveal the deeper habits that motivate us and step into the immediate open spaciousness that can heal ourselves and the world. We'll get into more about the book in the next few moments. If you'd like to learn more about today's honored guest and his work, you can visit his website, which is dharmata.org. So Banyan Books community, please join me in a very warm welcome to Anam. Thubton. Anam Thubton, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> now, maybe we can start by talking a little bit about the origins of Chode and what, what is Chode as a practice. In, in the book you write, Buddhism is rich with a variety of profound methods of working with our minds. Among them, Chod is undoubtedly one of the most radical and powerful. 
Can you help our audience just understand the essence of what Chode practice is? Um, yeah, thank you for the uh, question. It's a really wonderful question. Uh, Chode, uh, Tibetan word, but uh, the translation of the word is Chode is a cotton through, which is a kind of self-explanatory. It gives this uh, sense that uh, the Chod is a, a practice that uh, is not so linear. It's not like that. Uh, there's a whole stages of the path, but it's more like uh, you go to the heart of matter and basically cut to the root of suffering in an immediate fashion, the sooner the better, of course, so we don't have to suffer. Uh, but uh, it is rootalized uh, in Paranjana Paramita Sutras, uh, or the Sutras of uh, Transcendent Wisdom. And these are uh, recorded teachings of Buddha embraced by many Mahayana Buddhists, uh, like Buddhist uh, in in China and Japan, of course, in, in Tibet. Uh, and these sutras often talks about uh, emptiness or the Mahashinya, the great emptiness. Uh, and then uh, Machigalabdun, this uh, female Tibetan master from the 12th century, uh, combined uh, the wisdom of uh, the Paranjana Paramita Sutras uh, and uh, the methods of a uh, Tantric Buddhism of Vajrayana. Uh, Tantric Buddhism is a quite uh, a unique uh, among other Buddhist practices because uh, it uh, uses a uh, different uh, and rich method uh, uh, from other Tibetan, uh, other Buddhist practices like visualization, working with mandala, and also deities. Uh, and also uh, they use a lot of a chant uh, uh, movement like sacred dance uh, and a uh, lot of sacred significances uh, uh, but it's a uh, uh, very powerful uh, what she has developed uh, and there's even this uh, uh, story that uh, until Machi Glavdun uh, the Tibetans will go to India and they would import uh, Buddhist teachings uh, from India to Tibet, but uh, with her development of this Chod, there was a big uh, shift happened in that whole uh, Buddhist history of Tibet, uh, and that uh, uh, even Indians began to embrace uh, Majigalabdhan's teachings, especially this Chod. There was kind of a huge shift uh, in history, because till that, India was regarded as a uh, the guru or the spiritual elder to uh, Tibet, but uh, from there on, uh, some uh, Buddhist teachings developed by Tibetan masters actually went back to India and uh, Indians embraced it. Uh, it's like Indians uh, were given this kind of almost recognition that now Buddhism is uh, developed, fully matured and independent. <laughs> and so, yeah, you, you don't have to come to India and to learn anything from us. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, I think her uh, teachings are usually uh, 
very profound and even today you can have access to her uh, teachings and they're very powerful and uh, contemporary almost like she wrote them yesterday or something like that even though uh, she wrote these teachings uh, uh, during the 12th century i think she really understood uh, the uh, human condition and how our mind works uh, and she also understand uh, uh, the very much uh, uh, all the neurotic patterns that we human beings uh, uh, go through but the whole approach is actually to journey into your own psyche and uh, and sometimes uh, uh, our psyche or consciousness is uh, described as a haunted ground like a cemetery or scary cemetery uh, cemeteries can be quite uh, scary and gruesome and uh, little bit even a, a, a morbid back into bed not like cemeteries in the western world which are sometimes so uh, lovely you know like a park almost uh, and so she used uh, the haunted ground or cemetery as uh, often analogy or metaphor to describe some of these places in our own psyche and our own consciousness and then she used often uh, archetypes like uh, uh, like basically a uh, cultural archetypes such as demons to describe our human neurosis like maybe like demon of hatred or demon of anger uh, like the inner demons uh, i think which is kind of universal uh, idea and then the whole idea is uh, uh, not to just spend a lot of time in meditating which you would have some benefit but uh, you know we could be meditating the rest of life but really won't get any rest we would be you know dealing with the very much uh, the root of suffering and also she realized that uh, sometimes uh, spiritual people even buddhists spend a lot of time uh, on analysis uh, but analysis can be a uh, very intellectual so she invites us to literally confront with our own neuroses uh, not just intellectually but experientially like almost uh, even like uh, even energetically invite them and recognize where they are and name them and then confront them and sometimes you can even kind of visualize your inner demons in a particular form uh, of course uh, in Tibet uh, you know they use uh, all these kind of uh, archetypal demons which we have plenty of them except you don't have a spaghetti monster but we might have a samba monster or tukba monster tukba like Tibetan noodle uh, but anyway yeah so you can actually use all these archetypal demons monsters as a, a purely kind of almost uh, allegory or imagery uh, to illuminate uh, these inner demons in your mind and uh, which can be really quite uh, powerful to I sometimes recommend people to uh, use uh, like uh, uh, like the archetypal demons monsters um, which are maybe uh, quite popular in the western world for example when people practice children with me sometimes I tell them to like even use uh, uh, some 
other gorgeous images from maybe famous uh, book or novel or maybe even Hollywood movie uh, like in Lord of Rings. Uh, the Gotham is like a wonderful, wonderful and mischievous character. Uh, I think uh, Lord of Rings is a great movie, but without Gotham, I don't think uh, you want to watch uh, the whole three sequels, but uh, the Gotham is a really uh, entertaining and it brought so much uh, live to the movie. So I tell sometimes people, uh, just visualize your ego in the form of a Gollum and then, you know, you don't have to be very serious. You can kind of laugh at yourself, but at the same time, uh, it's uh, quite actually powerful to, to use that uh, whole uh, uh, allegory to, to think that, you know, you can even visualize your own ego in the form of a golem, just know that there's a golem who's a kind of mischievous, self-conflicted. Sometimes, uh, you know, he has some goodness, but he's very much uh, conflicted. And and so, and the magic love don't uh, teaching on this chutti, yeah, she invited us to uh, almost like picture, imagine all neuroses and the demons and the, all these forms, like all these imageries. Uh, I think she may be I realize that uh, if you do that, uh, then your whole self-reflection won't be just some kind of conceptual analysis, but it would be like really embodied, uh, very much a loving experience. Uh, and that works even uh, a more like a, a, a visceral level. And that's why I think it's quite powerful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one of the things that I was really fascinated by is throughout the book, your description of the chodpas, the, the practitioners um, who often would practice in cemeteries and these wild places to, in, to evoke, you know, their own inner demons, fear and expectation and the like. I'm just wondering if for our audience, you can explain a little bit about the way of life of the traditional chodpa practitioners and the role that they play in Tibetan society. Uh, yeah, Chopas are uh, very uh, kind of almost uh, unconventional. Yeah, they're considered unconventional. They are very much respected uh, in some sense. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, everybody can be Chopa too. But there are people who dedicated uh, their entire life uh, to just practice this chok and uh, sometimes uh, they are kind of wandering mendicant uh, and they really basically kind of cut ties with uh, in some sense all this uh, conventional uh, world around them even though they, they will be very much engaged with the society and some of them actually even live in a cave next to the cemeteries and and that's how kind of liberated they can be uh, but that can be maybe a little bit extreme for most people but if anybody wants to do chud then sometimes you can go on the pilgrimage you can go on the physical journey for like a few months and you carry this uh, tent which is uh, called a chokpa in tibetan language it's like a almost like camping tent, literally, with one pole, and you carry that uh, tent, uh, and then you 
camp out at uh, one side, then you do the whole chill practice. Uh, intentionally, you invoke all your inner demons, like demon of uh, fear, loneliness, and security. And, uh, and you, you basically allow yourself to face all your inner demons uh, and that are hiding in dungeon of our and Saki, and then basically you uh, use this chut practice to cut through your identification with this inner demons. And so you feel that uh, uh, there's liberation takes place in your consciousness. You feel you're no longer bound by them, but they continue to sometimes journey for days and days. The idea is that towards the end of the journey, either you do that one, week or month, uh, you're kind of supposed to feel that uh, all these chains are gone in your conscience. You feel that you're kind of freed in some sense. Uh, of course, uh, that does not mean that you will be really completely liberated from there on. I'm sure as long as we live uh, in this world, in this incarnation, we always uh, would have some shadow to work on <laughs> in their shadow. But I think many people have this aspiration that towards the end of journey, they're going to let go of some burden, some, some burden that they have been carrying all along, like feeling that they are going to be liberated and which happens to uh, many people. And uh, Chod is also a very much uh, 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 ritual, very ritual in many ways, has a ceremony, has a particular liturgy. Uh, the Chopas often actually use uh, instruments uh, like Damar, a small hand drum, bell, and, and some of them would wear only white uh, zan, uh, which is tripping for white shell, and some of them even kind of let their hair grow. They don't really take care of their physical appearances intentionally. And, uh, and they spend lots of time practicing uh, in the wilderness, which is kind of very interesting because you'll see that uh, in many Buddhist culture, monks, lamas, uh, nuns usually practice inside of the temple. But the Chopas, they usually spend lots of time in the wilderness and then do the practice, the whole ceremony. Indeed, Magic Labdon talked about uh, 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 the uh, spatial characteristics of her path, Chop. And one of them is that you can do this anywhere. You know, it's not like you have to be in any special place. You you can do this chill anywhere. You can do that in a downtown as long as nobody really minds. Maybe people think you're just street performer, uh, but you know, while you're doing this chill. So ideas, it's not like you have to be in some special sanctuary or temple, but you can do this practice anywhere, either inside temple or in your living room or maybe in a downtown somewhere, or at an office, like corporate office. Uh, but the tradition, many Shopas actually travel uh, in the wilderness, and then they uh, practice sometimes by themselves. And I think, uh, uh, yes, when you are alone uh, in the wilderness, when you do all these uh, powerful practices, uh, it brings up a lot of inner demons, uh, you know, really lots of demons. And you can see 
you can see not just they're there, but you can really see uh, that the, the bondage, the kind of bondage, the energetic bondage between you and these inner demons, I guess we can call them kind of identification with our inner demons. Uh, and some Buddhist teacher even call and that uh, uh, bondage as a trava or like Tibetan word for like a web, almost like a web or nest that you're kind of stuck in it. Uh, so the truth is to cut through that, uh, that sort of web or that uh, nets, right? Nets that kind of bind you into the neuroses. Uh, uh, yeah, that's the, the way of a chopa. And uh, also in all days in Tibet, we, of course, as always, we had uh, uh, people who have uh, sometimes a uh, uh, very powerful emotional appeals, maybe like uh, you might say a psychotic break uh, uh, in the Western language, but we didn't use any kind of psychological word. But you know, we have we had cases in the old days where people would just go crazy, but there are no therapists, there are no psychiatrists who can uh, prescribe all this. Um, medications and usually, you know, not too many people want to deal with somebody who's having a, a, a like psychotic break. Uh, uh, Lamas are not always ready to deal with this uh, 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 situation, but they always take to the chopas. Chopas are ones who are brave enough to, to welcome uh, people who are really mentally sick and, and sometimes they, uh, and just do the whole practice as a heathen. And there are many cases, many real uh, cases where people actually get healed from receiving uh, the that energetic transmission or the blessing uh, from Chopas, uh, who performs the whole practice uh, as a, a means of healing. And that happens too. So Chopas are also regarded as a sometimes a healer. Uh, but then there are a lot of uh, people who practice this chult. They just don't uh, call themselves as a chopa. So they just do that practice. But then there are people who uh, literally call themselves as chopas and uh, they tend to even lead a very particular lifestyle, like not to get attached to a lot of a uh, material possessions, like live really simply, and they kind of demonstrated that they're not really caught up in conventions. <laughs> One of the things I love is that, of course, there's these chodpas who maybe are living more on the fringes of society, but in the book, you really show us how we can practice chod in everyday life, and you use this kind of framing of the haunted ground in these different aspects of everyday living, for instance, the haunted ground of society. And within that, I really liked when you talked about what you called the haunted ground of career. So you're looking at how we can practice Chud in, in these everyday circumstances. I'll, if I can share a quote and then ask you a question, um, you write, the illusion of meritocracy mesmerizes us into thinking that we can chase our dreams, get a lucrative career, and achieve glory. Yet the harsh continual competitiveness and stark comparisons to others leaves us feeling left behind, jealous, and deficient. 
Desire for recognition, advancement, fame, achievement, and money infiltrate careers, causing suffering and confusion. I'm wondering if you can just illuminate a little bit for our audience how the career environment can become like a haunted ground of challenges and facing our inner demons so that we can, we can practice. Yeah, thank you for uh, asking me that question. Yeah, career, uh, the whole, the, you know, the world of career is, I think, a big haunted ground. Uh, um, maybe it has been like this all along, uh, but I feel that uh, this whole kind of ego mixed with the career is, a, in some sense, a modern phenomenon. Uh, and, and maybe it started... Uh, in the West, uh, now it's all over that uh, uh, whole hunter ground is everywhere all over the world, but maybe it started from the Industrial Revolution. Uh, I remember that uh, even in 1980s in the, in the Himalayas, uh, people live very simply, and it's not like that you have to think about uh, what a career you're going to have in the future. Basically, there are few choices for everybody. Either you become monastic, or you become nomad, or you become farmer. That's pretty much it. So there are three <laughs> roles that you can play. Most of the time, because lots of people really didn't go to schools, uh, and hardly anybody had a PhD during those days. But of course, the whole world is changing. Even, even uh, Tibet is changing too right now. So now I think uh, we are living in a, a, in a very interesting era where we have a lot of choices. And in some ways, I think it's kind of wonderful because uh, uh, we are very much individualistic and we can forge our individual identity. We're not just uh, somebody. Everybody is now uh, kind of special on their own. And uh, we... we you know, are born to a certain family, and then we like to think about what we want to do when we grow up. We have so many choices. Now, like you have three choices, either go to monastery or become farmer or nomad. <laughs> you can think that maybe you want to be a pilot or whatever, or maybe computer programmer, or maybe president of the United States or something, <laughs> or maybe mayor of your own town, or maybe you want to become, uh, I don't know, like a uh, a chef. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, yeah, there's so, there's so many kind of choices. And also, and I think modern world definitely empowers uh, each of us to be who we are, to be individual and not to just become uh, just uh, somebody. Uh, and, but then we kind of have to figure out uh, what our path is, and we have to also forge our identity. And so usually, you know, many people go to uh, schools and, and then many people uh, continue their education, go, go into higher education institutions, and then and then eventually you, you have a career, but the career becomes kind of your ego identity. It's more than just uh, uh, your survival need. I think, uh, uh, theoretically, uh, if we have enough food, then we will be okay, right? We'll be, I don't know, we'll be happy, but we'll be content, uh, theoretically. <laughs> I remember 
reading this uh, uh, Tibetan text uh, composed by a very famous Dzogchen master called Dinjum Naba from the 19th century. So I was reading his uh, text, which is quite long, has like a few hundred pages. He's an amazing, extraordinary Dzogchen master. And he said that if you have a, a roof above your head and food in front of it, then you should be happy. And, and that was so profound to me. <laughs> and it totally makes sense, right? Uh, theoretically, but that's not how people are experiencing. I think most people are not happy because they have a roof above their head or food in front of them. Most people are not happy with just their surviving. Most people are not happy with having a basic need. And because now the career becomes your kind of identity. And of course, a career is also sometimes very much way to an hour living, but it's more than that. There's whole kind of status involved and then money involved. And some careers are much more glorious than other careers. It depends on the, the nature of the creator. You know, some careers uh, can be very lucrative job and, uh, and some careers not so much. Uh, and some careers are very uh, glorious, desirable, admirable. And some career is not so maybe admirable. Uh, I don't know, but uh, I, I I, I, you know, I used to travel quite a lot on the aeroplane and uh, people asked me, what do you do? You know, there was a time that everybody talked with each other on the aeroplane. I remember that one of the things that people want to ask is what you do. It means what's your career? And I always had really difficult to tell people what I do, my, what my career is, because uh, uh, I realized that I didn't have kind of conventional career because I was just traveling and teaching Buddhism and the meditation. So uh, I didn't want to really, uh, yeah, I didn't know what to say. It was kind of a little bit of difficulty for me to tell people what my career is. But I guess everybody expects that you have some kind of career. And if I tell them what I do, maybe they immediately form some kind of opinion about uh, who I am. You see, if I say I'm a doctor, maybe they think, oh, he is pretty cool. <laughs> or oh, I'm a scientist, oh, they think he's cool. But if I tell them, um, you know, I, I don't know, maybe like gardener, who knows what they think about me. <laughs> <laughs> if I tell them doctor, maybe they want to get my phone number or something like that. <laughs> I feel that people are ready to form, kind of judge you unconsciously, like almost like, People are walking with some kind of uh, this uh, invisible measurement to measure your worth. They literally put your worth on the scale in modern world, depend on what you do, you know. I mean, if you go around, uh, imagine that you work at White House. If you tell somebody, I work at White House, immediately they will think that uh, you are a kind of VIP. But if you say, oh, I'm just uh, somebody who cleans uh, restroom, then who knows what people think about you. So I think people really identify with their career. And not only that, the society had this kind of almost uh, unspoken kind of uh, uh, system in which that uh, 
uh, careers has a hierarchy. Some career is much more desirable, uh, noble, and respected, respected, and some careers are considered like inferior and undeserved. Even though we don't say that, but there's this kind of invisible system that the society created, and many people are actually suffering from the system, and because many people are judged, and so. Yeah, career is a, 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 such a, a, such ego thing, and sometimes, uh, yeah, I feel there's so much to talk about. But I think the problem in modern world is that we can don't know who we are, right? We really don't know sometimes who we are, and we are trying to kind of define who we are by all these uh, uh, kind of acquired conditions, the second conditions, either the uh, you know, the career or your social status or how much money you have uh, because there's part of us we can't really don't know exactly who we are and so we are trying to find the sense of self uh, uh, by basically acquiring these uh, uh, conditions uh, including career. That, that's sort of my analysis. Thank you. I, I I just as a side note, I wonder is does does Buddhism have any any view on like in Western society we've kind of got this commonly accepted view that self actualization is really important in 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 other words like expressing ourselves in a certain way and I think career often is the form that that takes. What would be the, the Buddhist view or even the view in, in Chod practice on that? Yeah, self-actualization. I, I use that word too. Uh, I guess we can all uh, give interpretation, our own interpretation on this very notion self-actualization. I think uh, it's a wonderful concept. It's, it's nothing wrong with that. Uh, uh, but I think self-actualization, in my understanding, is that uh, you kind of know who you are, basically. You don't really have to go around and trying to find some kind of recognition from anywhere, from society. You kind of know who you are, you know, you're confident, you're kind of happy with yourself. <laughs> it's not like you have to, you know, buy a red sport car to prove the world that you are worthwhile or you are cool or anything like that. It's not like you have to have some kind of achievement like a, a academic achievement or, or, or some, you know, like very famous, uh, whatever, family that you're born to. I don't think you need any of them. And you don't need uh, like approval from anybody. You truly, you're truly kind of content with who you are. You, you basically, you know yourself. To me, that is a self-actualization and I think questions are kind of how we can get there right to, to that uh, self-actualization and uh, in some sense you could say Chod is actually a, a practice that allows us to uh, yeah actualize uh, our authentic self because uh, the other side of the self-actualization is a uh, Ego, ego, you know, ego is the hindrances to the self-actualization, which is kind of contradictory, right, in some sense, <laughs> uh, because ego wants to be everything, right? On the other hand, ego wants to be happy, ego wants to be special, 
And sometimes even ego wants to be enlightened itself. Even ego wants to actualize a, a authentic self, but then ego is the hindrances to the self-actualization and, and therefore like self-doubt, uh, self-loathing, and the kind of feeling not good enough or feeling shamed. And then uh, as we know that ego constantly compares uh, uh, with others, right? I mean, our ego often compare us with the other people and then kind of finding and that maybe we're not good enough as somebody. So we feel ashamed or inadequate. And then I go, said, oh, you're better than that person. So we feel like a little pride, unhealthy pride. And so to me, the ego is the hindrance to self-actualization. So the true self-actualization really comes into being by basically not being trapped by one's ego. But to do that, the first, the, the need of awareness, I think we have to be fully aware of our own ego. And that's very challenging then because uh, uh, first, I don't know how much we even talk about that to become aware of ego. Uh, obviously, the secular society really doesn't uh, encourage us to become aware of our ego, kind of almost like glorify ego, right? Secular world does sometimes glorify ego, like secular world kind of says the, the more ego you have, the better you are. I mean, you know, we, we have sometimes a kind of celebrities, politicians uh, who are very much uh, admired by people, but the uh, Sometimes what they embody is kind of purely ego, ego and pride and uh, self-centeredness, unfortunately. So I think uh, modern, the secular world doesn't have a, a, a sacred model. That's something I worried about. Uh, at least uh, if you go back to ancient culture like Tibet, uh, I'm not saying that Tibet is perfect. Uh, I'm not saying that, but at least we had uh, even today, like uh, sacred models. Uh, and if you ask me, who are the Tibetan celebrities? Uh, it won't be movie stars. It won't be like uh, billionaires. By the way, there are no billionaire Tibetan right now on earth. <laughs> it's non-existent. So isn't that funny? So they're not really famous Tibetan movie stars. Uh, and yeah, there's some famous Tibetan folk singers, but they're no like a famous Tibetan rock star or, or they're not really like, you know, famous Tibetan pub band in the world. So our uh, celebrities uh, are sacred models. I know one Lama, he's really famous in Tibet. And he's perhaps the most famous. His name is Kambo uh, Srimlod. I know him. He lives in Tibet. He's a monk. He's a humble monk. But he's most famous uh, in Tibet. He's more famous than Tibetan singers or... I mean, Tibetan pop singer, we have some pop singers. He's loved. He has lots of uh, followers on social media and people try to actually follow him. But what he demonstrated is a humility, love, compassion, contentment, generosity. And so I feel sometimes uh, the modern secular society is lacking in the sacred role model. So we need a role model and that teaches us uh, how to be truly content and how to find uh, a meaning and a more spiritual value. So, so yeah, I hope what I'm saying is making sense.
Oh, yes, that's really wonderful. Thank you. Before we get to our audience questions, there's, there's one other question that I wanted to ask you. And you talk about it's very important for us to really understand the view or the philosophy, the underlying foundations of Chode practice. Um, you, you tell us that the whole outlook of Chode is based on the wisdom of emptiness. And the name for this emptiness is Shunyata. And at the end of the chapter on emptiness, you write, this path requires diligence and honesty in investigating the nature of reality, not clinging to anything no matter how much we cherish it, but seeing it as being this, of the same empty nature as everything. Can you illuminate for us the nature of reality as emptiness or shunyata and explain why this understanding is really the foundation for all chilled practice? Yeah, I was hoping that you would not ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> the prayers didn't work. <laughs> I'm joking too. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it's perhaps the, the hardest question you can ask me. Yes, but I'm glad yes. that you asked me that question because uh, it, it's like the, the most profound uh, a topic that you can discuss, not just in my book, but uh, in, in the Buddhist doctrine. By the way, my book is not really my book. I really haven't said anything that is a, a new. I just uh, uh, basically wrote this book as a, a more like a contemporary interpretation of the Chod, which is very much uh, based on the, the, the doctrine of emptiness or Mahashinyata. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, emptiness is kind of Buddhist version of the absolute truth. I guess every religion has their own version of absolute truth or the ineffable. Uh, a lot of the uh, theistic religions uh, tend to uh, basically uh, define the absolute or, or the ineffable uh, as a being, like entity, like supernatural entity, uh, but in Buddhism, because it is a non-theistic tradition, and so there's no really uh, some kind of supreme omnipresent being as the absolute. Instead, emptiness is the absolute truth. But emptiness is not really a thing, uh, not a, a, some kind of thing that we can actually even understand. But in some sense, uh, you can say emptiness is a really nature of all the nature of reality. So there are different ways to uh, really even talk about emptiness. Uh, uh, it's not just there's one way to talk about emptiness. And that has been true even in Buddhism. Like there are some Buddhist schools of thought, lineages, and they teach you to study scriptures and emptiness, and they teach you to think and think and contemplate, analyze in order to realize the emptiness. And there's some lineages, they kind of teach you to dub everything, dub all your analysis, dub even idea of emptiness. And so they teach you there will be some kind of openness in your consciousness, through which that you can understand emptiness, which are supposed to be totally ineffable, that go beyond words and concepts and ideas. So it's a, uh, such a rich topic, but I think uh, uh, 
uh, in some sense, emptiness is not that difficult. Yes, it is a difficulty, but it's not that difficult to be understood. I think emptiness is, a, in, in some sense, is not some kind of, uh, some kind of grand nature reality, but emptiness is sometimes a practice of uh, kind of deconstructing illusions that we create in our mind because life runs by illusion, literally, right? We can all know that. In some part of us kind of knows life is really run by illusion. So this human life is run by illusion. It's a big illusion, it's a giant illusion. And I do not mean life is not real, but it's an illusion. And even like lots of things we do is kind of illusion because uh, uh, we constructed uh, uh, the very notion of reality by our own mind, by our belief systems, concepts, idea. Uh, I, I, I talk a little bit in this book, like for example, Right now, I'm here in California, but what is California, right? I mean, there's no really California where we can say, well, there's California, you can look at the map. This is the border between California versus Oregon, another state. But the whole thing was, in an ultimate sense, uh, mind-made. There's no really California, you cannot find anywhere. I mean, what is the border between California and Oregon, for example? So this is one example. So, so when you look around, everything that we are perceiving to be real is kind of mind-created reality. And uh, so that's why sometimes, uh, uh, maybe you feel that, uh, I, I love really spend time in the nature because when you go into nature, there are no concepts. Trees don't have concepts, right? And then slowly, kind of, you begin to lose your concepts and walk in the nature. And then you kind of feel that even self dissolves. You know, all your ideas begin to dissolve. Your name, you know, your identity, uh, your career, your glory, if we have. Everything can begin to dissolve. You become kind of almost inseparable with the nature because there are no really uh, concepts in the nature. The redwoods don't have concepts and the rocks and uh, yeah, earth, uh, river have no concept, but human mind had concepts. And it kind of makes sense because uh, to be human is in some sense very uh, uh, amazing. It's uh, so colorful. I think to be human is extremely colorful. That's what I kind of said, really, really colorful. And, uh, but so we have this amazing mind that can think, that can uh, create stories, narratives. Uh, so that's why I think human life is extremely colorful. I'm not saying that human life is better than life of, uh, let's say, you know, the bird, uh, like, you know, we have lots of birds around here. I would not say life of human beings is better than life of yak, you know, the yak animal to be, but I think the human life is very colorful because we have a, this mind that has ability to create stories. But then, yeah, if we remember lots of things we think is a reality story, we'll be having a good time, right? Oh, this is kind of colorful, but we know it's all just a, a drama, life is a drama, so we can enjoy it. But I think in the process of our mind creating all these stories, illusions, we forgot that what we have been creating is actually stories. 
illusion and then we're kind of lost in in as creation it's like imagine human mind is a novelist who wrote a novel fiction and then she forgot that it was a fiction and she began to believing that it is a real it is a true event i think that's what happened to us so emptiness is a kind of this buddhist way to kind of waking yourself up letting you realize that you even don't have to deconstruct anything but letting you realize that this whole thing what we call life is a kind of half real half not real how about that it's like many parts of life that we are really holding on to the kind of illusion it's a doesn't really have any kind of groundness in reality uh, uh yeah i think uh, people can't know that the dip down i think people know that the dip down if they can't allow themselves to be in touch with their yeah in that wisdom which we all have uh, but on the other hand emptiness is really challenging too because uh, uh it's very radical idea that uh, the reality that we are holding on to is uh, just mind uh, created it's a uh, run by show illusion thank you thank you so much for fielding that question uh, despite your prayers to the contrary <laughs> we have some nice questions coming in from our audience if uh if you would like to get to those now please uh... the first one is from hoda and hoda says profound grief how do we navigate through it bowing my gratitude yeah grief i, I feel that uh, we humanity it's grieving all the time and the grief is a part of life is very rich uh, uh you you might like to listen to uh music that is kind of uh very uh, sometimes uh, beautiful but the sad uh, many people love to listen to maybe certain musics like uh, like classical music so uh, uh Uh, I listen to classical music quite often and uh, and sometimes you know you listen to classical you, you watch like clouds drifting or you watch sunset uh, or you watch maybe uh sometimes uh, yeah like do on the grass uh, uh but I think there's some kind of this beautiful sadness in all of them and that's how i feel maybe that's many people i think there's kind of grief all the time it's not like uh, painful it's kind of beautiful but i think there's kind of grief all the time and there's a real grief because we kind of all we lost so much when you think from that point of view we we lost so much we we lost many people we loved uh, we lost our grandparents uh, uh we some of us have maybe lost uh this and that we lost so many friends we lost beautiful memories we lost uh, countless beautiful days and years so many decades well they are gone <laughs> uh, some of us lost uh, 50 decades or 40 decades that we cannot uh, claim back you know have you ever had this kind of experience that uh, maybe you revisit a beach that you haven't been for the last 25 years or 30 years you go back to that beach 
and you kind of sit there and you realize that oh you know 20 years ago i was here i was much younger and can and then you realize that that person is gone and you realize that within that 25 years or whatever 20 years and so many of your friends actually literally enter from this world so i think we we lose so much we always lose every night when sun goes down we are losing something in tibetan culture they they don't really like sunset uh, which is very funny there was kind of very much a culture cultural shock to me when i came to west because everybody are completely just gung-ho about sunset in the west and in tibet we don't like sunset and we call it shunyama uh, means the shunyama uh, means like the sun of the dead because it kind of you know going away the sun is a setting the sun is disappearing it's like if the sun is a giant <laughs> that's the idea so people really don't like that because uh, it kind of associate with a giant and and then they love a sunrise in tibetan culture it's just like that even when you look at a sunset no matter how much you love it but there's i think kind of this grief because sun that sun would go away right that's that beautiful yeah orange colored uh, bright uh, sky unbelievably just beautiful but it will go away just like that i think there's always kind of grief uh, that we're over losing all this countless magics uh, so i think grief is a fine part of life but then we have a more like emotional grief uh, uh when we lose uh, somebody like a family member and uh, i in tibetan culture you you uh, theoretically you you're supposed to go through the the process of a grieving for 49 days and then and then you overcome it i think that might work for many people but i think there are some cases where you lose somebody and uh, you you may grieve for a long time and that's okay too and but uh, now and then you might like to also look into your own grief and uh, just uh, hold your own grief uh, and uh, let it be as long as it need to be but uh, also same time maybe uh, sometimes uh, grief can become kind of source of suffering too and that's the when our ego get lost in stories be around the grief so there stories usually and stories are stories and then we can be really lost in the grief uh, i mean then we don't have lose anything we can lose something very maybe insignificant and we can be really lost in the grief for a very long time i don't know, maybe we can lose our car old car which uh, is fallen apart anyway but you know somebody could be suffered completely or losing uh, that old car which is uh, fallen apart anyway you know i'm giving just the hypothetical example so greed becomes unhealthy becomes a source of suffering when our ego get lost in the stories that it uh, construct around it but the grief uh, as a pure experience i think very healthy is part of life uh, no need to try to to uh, uh, move away from it uh, and then it, it would uh, it would go away on its own and it will stay in us as long as uh, 
it, it, it needs to stay there. It has its own natural rhythm. Thank you, and thank you for the question, Hoda. There's a question from Lara who says, some people want to take this journey, but they fear that life will be quite stark and miserable when they detach from their comforts and possessions. How do we deal with these fears? Uh, uh, yeah, let's uh, uh, I, I don't think this path is about detachment. Uh, no, it's not about detachment. Uh, uh, detachment uh, is like uh, this uh, idea that you totally cut ties with the world uh, and you kind of turn your back against the world uh, and close your heart completely to the world. Uh, and not just you close your heart to the, the uh, miserable part of life, but the beautiful part of life too, <laughs> uh, which is uh, not a very healthy thing to do. Uh, detachment to me is you're kind of closing your heart to everything, all aspects of life. Uh, and life is uh, uh, very rich and there are a lot of uh, pain, but there are lots of also joy and there are a lot of sadness and there are lots of also uh, uh, just bliss too. Life is kind of big, uh, big mixture of everything. It's like, uh, wasn't there this expression and powers some like 10,000 joy or 20,000 sorrow. That's what we life is. Uh, I think life is like Indian food sometimes with just lots of flavors. <laughs> uh, yeah, perhaps you all had Indian food. I think Indian food uh, has a very, uh, is very unusual because I think they can put lots of uh, spice together that usually don't mix very well in other cuisines. Maybe, I don't know uh, how to cook Indian food, but uh, what I know is that uh, they put lots of uh, spice into one dish. So life is like Indian food, can I say that? It's just filled with all kinds of texture, flavors, bitter, sweet, sour. And to me, detachment is you kind of close your heart to all of them. And then, yeah, so you can do that. And what you become is kind of stoic in not very good way. And ego kind of find a, a comfort in that being stoic because then you don't have to feel anything. You don't have to feel the joy, but then you don't have to feel the sadness, something like that. You don't see the beauty, but then you don't have to see kind of the misery part of life. You kind of close everything to all these rich flares of life, uh, but then you can be stoic and uh, uh, ego loves to be a uh, very stoic sometimes because then you don't have to feel anything. And then there's one feeling, which is that feeling that you're not feeling anything. That's sort of my joke, which can be an addictive for ego. You know, oh, this is a good, I'm not really having a good time, but I'm not having a bad time either. So maybe this is a better zone to be in my consciousness because if I allow myself to feel beauty, then I'm going to soon witness pain and sorrow. Uh, maybe I just have to close my heart uh, to the whole thing together. That, that's uh, what detachment is. This is uh, not about detachment. This is actually about uh, uh, just cutting through your, your grasping to your concepts, ideas, to your like uh, uh, all this uh, very powerful, but some ways it's almost like a unprocessed uh, old emotions, uh, 
it's the opposite of a detachment. This is actually about engaging with inner demons. You engage them, you dance with them, and it should. You even invite them, your neuroses, instead of running away, and you feed them uh, in your mind, literally, and you hold them, and you, then you find the liberation in holding and totally embracing your own pain, your own suffering. So it's the opposite of the detachment, but also, yes, we hear this uh, kind of very, uh, uh, very lovely, it's almost like almost a kind of idyllic uh, stories about Chopas who kind of went here from the world. Well, that works for some people in some cultures, but it's not like you have to be a wandering yogi in order to be too Chopa. Uh, you can live wherever you are, you can ha have a, your usual life and uh, and be true chopper. Uh, yeah, you don't have to really give anything in the ultimate sense. Thank you and, and thanks Lara for that question. I think we have time for one more audience question. Uh, I just want to remind everyone, our, our honored guest this evening is Anam Thubton, and we've been speaking about his new book, which is called Into the Haunted Ground, A Guide to Cutting the Root of Suffering from the Tibetan Practice of Chod. Um, and it's a very beautiful book, and um, I really encourage everyone to get a copy of it and read. Of course, you can get it at, at Banyan Books at Banyan.com, or you can come into the store in person. Um, a big thanks to our live audience. Uh, it's always so wonderful to have a, the live audience here uh, creating these events with us. And a big thanks to Jacob Steele, who is our events curator and podcast producer for everything that he does. Um, one more audience question, if we may. It's from Gaia, who seems to be quite familiar with you. Perhaps you two know each other. She says, Aloha Rinpoche. I miss you being with us on Maui, Hawaii, but I have never missed anything that you do on Zoom. And of course, I read and love all of your books. My question is, why does it seem like the more practice I do, the more obstacles appear to show up? Do you think that it is because I need more opportunities to burn up karma? Or maybe it is something else. Perhaps I should call them challenges I need to meet. Your thoughts on this, please, Rinpoche. Yeah, there, there is, a, of course, this uh, idea that uh, the more you travel on this journey, uh, uh, more obstacles will arise, so you can use them to whatever advance uh, or, or make progress along the um, path but I don't uh, think that uh, the practice the journey that you're on are going to bring more obstacles I think obstacles just part of a life somehow it's like a season life has seasons and our period in our life, we feel that uh, somehow life is intentionally challenging us. And then our period in our life, everything becomes kind of easy going and benevolent. Uh, so life is like the cycle of the year has all these different uh, and seasons. Uh, 
So I would not really say that uh, your journey will create more obstacles so you can purify karma. Uh, I would not say that. I mean, it sounds wonderful, but I would not say that in some sense. It's, I mean, wonderful because it seems like uh, somehow the the practice, your spiritual practice is causing all these uh, obstacles instead of the life, uh, at least the... Uh, a blessing right but I, I do not look from that point of view what i think is uh, not to have so much idea about uh, that uh, just let go of your ideas about that uh, but kind of to 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 yeah try to embrace uh, obstacles as a a path as an opportunity to wake up and uh, and then also uh, there's this uh, famous uh, expression in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, which goes, let me say that in Tibetan, means uh, all conditions become a uh, friend or something like that. Friend of, uh, become your friend. All conditions become your friend. And that means that uh, if you just uh, literally take in all circumstances, the ones uh, that are challenging, once they are not so challenging, as just uh, uh, part of the path. And so you can work with these conditions, uh, and some conditions will give lots of you hope, ambition, and you look into that inner demon and, and cut through identification with that inner demon. Some conditions will bring about your fear and insecurity, then look inside and use these conditions as a path so you can arise above the demon of fear, demon of insecurity. Uh, I hope that uh, my answer is what you are looking for. Uh, nice to hear from you, uh, Gaia. Best wishes to you. Thank you and thank you, Gaia. Um, Anam Thubton, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us this evening. It's really been a great benefit for all of us to, to be in your company and to, to hear what you have to share. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross Makichi. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.